Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. Hey, everybody. So I recently posted a short, about 10-minute long solo pod on the Israel-Hamas war. And in that, I wanted to call attention to some previous episodes that I had recorded on end times anxiety and end times expectation. So today we are going to rebroadcast one of those episodes in part because we are away at Theology Beer Camp in Missouri right now. But also, I wanted to do more than just mention them. I thought maybe there's somebody for whom putting this in the feed will make them more likely to hear it and then hopefully draw some comfort um, and help from uh, these episodes, which are pretty old now. They're, They're like three years old or whatever. I've also had a little bit of time to read more about what's going on there. A lot of podcasts are doing episodes with experts about, you know, the the regional conflict and the history there between Palestine and sort of the two areas of Palestine, one of which is controlled by Hamas, one of which is not. Um, I'm not planning to do any of that kind of content. I think there are plenty of good episodes. You could, for instance, listen to the recent episode of the New Evangelicals about that, where uh, Tim interviewed Dan Hummel, I think is his name. I might have Dan on or somebody else. I'm thinking I will in the in the coming weeks. But I want to talk about specifically premillennial dispensationalism, the end times theology and and all that kind of thing, because that's kind of more in my wheelhouse. And I've gotten a lot of really good feedback from people about that short episode, just kind of speaking directly to people's anxiety. So I want to do a larger treatment there and kind of go through a lot of what I had to learn in my 20s as I was dealing with that end times anxiety. But for now, I wanted to put these episodes up here, or at least one of them, to kind of gesture at what these are about. Uh, Josh will have links in the notes to the other parts and the other episodes as well, if you want to listen to those. But I I did just want to say, like, it's become clear to me now, the specific attack by Hamas on Israeli civilians. I mean, that just to be abundantly clear, like that is is evil and uh, just incredibly heartbreaking. Um, no, in in my opinion, no situation of political, you know, subjugation. I mean, almost almost nothing conceivable in the whole world justifies actions like that. Uh, so I, I want to be clear: I'm not equivocating on what Hamas specifically did that day, you know, Israel's own kind of 9-11 as it's being um, understood and, and, and the, the sort of numbers seem to bear that out. So just to be clear, when I say it's above my pay grade, I mean the sort of larger decades long, you know, conflict. That, that's what I mean. Okay, so I hope that this can be helpful for you guys while we are away meeting, meeting a lot of you and, and other folks at Theology Beer Camp. We will be back next week with a a regularly scheduled episode.
Steve Williams, one of my interview subjects today, was an audio engineer in the Jesus Movement heyday, and he recorded what we are listening to right now. Children died, the days The most significant thing I can say about that is I used to say, and I guess I still do if asked, I heard the gospel with headphones on in the sense of, you know, some of my first exposure to the entire concept of an actual born-again experience with Jesus Christ was heard through the music of that era. This is, of course, that ubiquitous Larry Norman song, I Wish We'd All Been Ready. The woman singing here... That's my mom. Part one of the previous four part series on end times anxiety from earlier this year featured this same song. And since this episode is uh, this episode and next week are a follow up or kind of a continuation of that project felt like a good way to begin. Uh, You don't have to listen to those End Times Anxiety episodes before you listen to this episode and next week's episode, but it really is a kind of a sequel. After those four episodes where I focused uh, so heavily on what the mental health implications were and what the sort of the lived experiences of mostly younger people who were raised with End Times theology, uh, people roughly my generation, I kept asking myself, why did my parents and their generation believe this stuff? Why was it so ubiquitous? I grew up in the 90s. I first learned about end times thinking in junior high at a Christian school. And then throughout high school and college, the Left Behind books made their way into my parents' house. I've told my own story with regard to this on those episodes, so I'm not going to repeat it too much. But I wanted to answer that question. Uh, why did they believe it? And that is the question that these two episodes attempt to answer. Um, to, to work on that, I did some research with available literature on the Jesus movement and end times expectations. And then I also interviewed four baby boomers about their own experience. So let me tell you, uh, there are basically three parts to my answer. Uh, I'll give you the Cliff's notes now. Number one, Most of the people who did the evangelizing that kicked off the Jesus movement of the late 60s, but especially early 70s, most of those people read the Bible a certain way before they started evangelizing. And the way that they read the Bible really emphasized end times prophecies. You could also say they were essentially fundamentalists with regard to biblical inspiration. So that's number one. The people who did the evangelizing already had a certain view of the text and a certain kind of Christianity. Number two of why it was so popular, many things happening in the world, especially in the early 70s in America, made it feel very plausible that the end was near in some general sense. And a few specific world events made this interpretation of biblical prophecy seem even more plausible. We'll get to that in more detail. Finally, number three, Uh, which is really not going to be covered until next week, is that the Jesus Movement generation, this group of basically baby boomers, they became the generation that had power and and positions, pulpits, leaders, leadership positions in evangelicalism 25 years later by the time Left Behind came out. So really briefly, why was Left Behind so popular in the 90s? The people who kicked off the Jesus Movement were basically fundamentalists. Number two, It seemed plausible that the fundamentalists were right, that the world really was ending and that the Bible had predicted a bunch of world events. And then number three, by the time the 90s came around, those same people were the ones in power within evangelical subculture. So that's the that's the short version of the argument. uh, But we're going to have some fun getting into more detail. Three of my four interview subjects this week and next week came to Christ as a direct result of the Jesus movement, which we will hear uh, a bit about later. But first, my fourth guest, Sally Bryant, who we're going to hear from now, was actually raised in conservative churches that were already more or less obsessed with end times teaching. 
they were the kind of Christians that did this evangelizing to kick the Jesus movement off. So she grew up in that particular theological soup, so to speak, in which our other three guests, Dave, Steve, and Danny, would soon find themselves. I grew up in a church that seemed to spend a lot of time on end times prophecies. There was a lot of focus on the rapture and being faithful, not getting the mark of the beast. And I remember as a child being absolutely terrified if I would come home and my parents weren't home when I thought they would be. I thought for sure the rapture had happened and I had been left behind. All through high school, that was an emphasis and a focus. What kind of church was this that you grew up in? Christian church and then conservative Baptist. Both of those were true at, at either one of those. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about high school then for a minute. 70 to 74, you are a high school student. You're reading Late Great Planet Earth. What about that book or the worldview it comes from to you felt plausible given your experience of the world at that time? I don't know that it comes from my experience with the world. It comes up and growing in a church culture that was so everything, and it was so prevalent in that church culture, which did not encourage independent thinking or experiential faith even. And so I just grew up accepting it. It was just part of my life. It was something that seemed very cool at the time. I wasn't really a member of the counterculture in that I, you know, was, I didn't run off to hate Ashbury, grow my hair, become a hippie. <laughs> you know, I had slightly longer hair. I kind of thought the music was cool. <laughs> it didn't in, engage in any kind of illicit drug use or anything like that. There were people out street witnessing to street people and kids that came to the hate Ashbury. And, you know, that was kind of like where the Jesus food had started, and at least I thought, and I think most of my peers did, that that was a cool thing, and we could be countercultural without being, you know, with a Christian influence. And I think that's kind of what I, the rough interpretation of it was being a member of the Jesus movement or a Jesus freak or whatever. You sort of looked like a hippie, and you carried around your leather-clad covered Bible and wore a big cross around your neck and had a fish on your car. <laughs> It was the boomer's version of, you know, being a hipster. It was the boomer's version of being nonconformist to the mores of the church at the time, you know, and just the culture of the church, you know, hymns and organ music and all that. I'm sure you heard somewhere in your travels that, you know, San Francisco is beyond salvation. It's just too depraved. God has given up on San Francisco and all the people that live there. Um, (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, there were people then that kind of said, well, you know, hippies can't get saved. You know, the, the line that was drawn and crossed, so to speak, was, wait a minute, you don't have to have short hair and listen to Lawrence Welk to be a Christian. I mean, you know, it was kind of like that in the sense of you didn't have to culturally conform to somewhere between, you know, 1948 and 1956. There were still people in various churches in the 1960s that insisted that if you were going to honor God and have an authentic relationship with Christ, you know, you should come to church and listen to the hymns, and you should have your suit and tie on, and, you know, nice short hair, and be well-groomed. There were people, though, on the other side of that equation, I guess to put it in the language of the day, God was giving them a burden for the counterculture, and they wanted to see these people who were, you know, scrungy and scruffy and out in the streets, and, you know, smoking pot, and living with their girlfriends and everything, come to Christ. And those people were more toward the fundamentalist side, but they had compassion on that. Yeah. And where you saw, you know, the the meeting of that, I don't know if you've ever read the story of the beginning of Calvary Chapel, but it was kind of like there were knockdown dragouts about, you know, whether we should allow those dirty people into our building, you know, and... Uh, yeah, I've read a little bit about that. Yeah, it's and really interesting. And it's like, rip up the carpet. It, 
what do we care about the building and what do we care about the way they look, you know, and that sort of thing. A brief audio note. If I'm switching between interviews and you can't tell that I am, I will put in a little beep sound like this. And that's how you know we're on a different interview now. So back to my conversation with Sally. So something that's come up that's interesting to me in these interviews is that for the numerology to work uh, in any way at all. So it's an actual seven years or it's whatever, anything that these maps are based on, it requires a plain literal reading of the text. Mm -hmm. And I, I think I would say it actually requires a dictation model of the inspiration of scripture that like, mm -hmm. At least for these prophecy passages, God is literally giving them word for word because math can't be only approximately true in a prophecy. If it's a code, if it's math, it has to be word for word dictated. Is that the view of the Bible, first of all, that you were given growing up? Yes. And was that view of the Bible just sort of taken for granted or what? Well, it, it was for me. It's what my parents said. It's what our pastor said. It's what everybody in the church affirmed. And to question it was to question the entire Bible, to, you know, to put yourself really at risk of losing your salvation. I want to talk about how you viewed the Bible when, in your early Christian years when you were wrapped up in the Jesus movement. Would you have said back then, would you have agreed with the statement, the Bible can be understood in a straightforward way by anyone who can read it. Probably in 71, I would have said yes, and that would have been more a statement of zeal. I was so zealous to read the Bible and study it and be taught it. I think there would have been a sense for me that, yes, that's true. Um, would you have thought that people just with general English language skills could have understood the prophetic elements and like used it as a guide to look at world events and check them against the news and all that stuff. Apart from any direction outside of themselves? Yeah. Um, or let's say they have a, a prophecy map that Hal Lindsey published or something simple like that. Well, if they had that, the answer would be yes. Because I would say that's exactly what did happen. That's what, but, I, ask about, that's what I ask if you meant without any help. If, if you take a simple uh, outline of a prophecy map and you read things, you can probably say, oh, it fits here, it fits here. If you believe that the prophecy map is itself an accurate depiction of biblical, of biblical theology and history. There was suspicion of anything that wasn't kind of King James fundamentalism, you know, read the Bible, word for word, common understanding, a little bit of anti-intellectualism, but, you know, as far back as I think I can ever remember listening to, you know, preachers on the radio and whatever, you know, whoever the current president was could potentially be the Antichrist and all of that. In that sense, it was tied in. As long as I ever remember hearing about such things, there was great suspicion of anything having to do with one world government, 666, Mark of the Beast, Antichrist. It was fairly seriously taken back then. So I'm wondering if you were drawn to that fundamentalist reading of the Bible or if it was like, well, the fundamentalist reading of the Bible is the only reading of the Bible and here's what the Bible says. And so I guess I'll get on board. More the latter. It seemed like the only theologically honest, true believer game in town. A lot of people, I think, I remember hearing, you know, the point at which higher criticism of Scripture started to be a thing as the beginning of the end of orthodoxy. It was perceived that, that anything that was not more literalist in terms of the interpretation of Scripture was undercutting it. There's a great suspicion of the National Council of Churches. That's like part of the whole world government thing, you know. So I'm interested about this ecumenicism stuff. I understand that in a lot of these interpretive schemas, uh, a one-world government or you know the European Union on the way to a one-world government or something, I understand that those played a role in certain interpretive frameworks of what the end would look like and what the Antichrist would use. What I don't understand is why churches, the body of Christ, 
being more unified with itself would present the same kind of worry. Do you have any thoughts about that? I would say that it just seemed a logical conclusion that um, anything that diluted, quote, pure theology, unquote, which would have been more fundamentalist, you know, I don't think this was really true of mainline denominational churches so much in those days, but a lot of people felt that the entire mainline, as I was alluding to earlier, council of churches, all mainline denominations had become too ecumenical, uh, too broad in their interpretation of scripture, or questioning biblical literism to too great an extent. And I can remember being in that camp. What did they say about liberal or secular culture, new age stuff, like, and you know, stuff out there in the unclean world? <laughs> it was bad. It was dangerous. It was insidious. It was unclean. I mean, really, it was very pharisaical in that the idea that what we encountered would make us clean or unclean. So literally the opposite of what Jesus said. It, literally the opposite. <laughs> it is not what goes into a man, but what comes out of his, his mouth, right? Out of the yeah. a mouth that the heart speaks. What about, did you hear stuff about like ecumenical movements, sort of unity movements, trying to like bring all the churches together, mm -hmm. European Union, any, any of, like anything toward unity, was, was that presented in a negative light? Anything outside of the conservative Baptist was... <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, we were, we were the true church. Let's just be real about that. <laughs> I remember once being at a Catholic church and asking my mother why they had a crucifix when we had a cross. And my mother, God bless her, said, well, they focus on the suffering. We focus on the resurrection. I think the other phenomenon uh, that drove college students, I think that was also the rise of Josh McDowell's early work. Known for, for evidence was, that demands a verdict. Exactly. It came out in that era. I drove with some friends from Atlanta to Athens. George drove to Athens, the 75 miles over to the University of Georgia to hear Josh McDowell do his resurrection hoax or history talk with several hundred you know, night at the University of Georgia. I can remember that, and that's probably... I don't know, 1972 maybe, and he was making his rounds, and I read the book, and that book was profoundly important to a lot of college students who then, because of this Jesus movement stuff, were now are finding themselves on university campuses at the right where university campuses were making hard strides into deeper into what would be more secular approaches to, to knowledge and everything. So... There's a, that idea that we were being handed an arsenal to go into that battle, but it was huge. And so it was wildly attractive. That was a big, big, big part of my college life as a brand new follower of Jesus. And I, I just ate that stuff up. So, and, and, and McDowell has other things but, uh, that in his book, but there's also a thing about fulfilled prophecy in his book as well. I remember takes, that, yeah. Where he takes certain Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled later at later dates makes the connections between those prophecies and fulfillments. Um, and he's the one that, while it wasn't him that created it, he's the one that popularized the notion on the, the birth prophecies about the Messiah being fulfilled in Jesus, being a great validation that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. Because the revival was youth-oriented, and, and so many of them were in, in universities and stuff, that they have that, those facts at, at hand to talk. And I think the level of, we hadn't got into sort of the, we're still in a, in a modernist thought world, and the postmodernist deconstruction is still a couple of decades away. So the the battle between meta narratives and what where's the proof is that was still pretty front and center in, in the whole discussion about what's true and not true. So that approach was extremely helpful and wildly popular at that time. It's going to be another couple of decades before all that gets deconstructed into a more postmodernist approach to knowledge and stuff. So. I think that's that makes huge. a lot of sense. That that really helps. That that connects some dots for me. Something that's very important to understand about this particular form of Christianity is it was very evangelistic. And any time you have a form of, of a religion that is very evangelistic, you're going to have a bunch of people join it. Uh, at least 
all things considered, right? Statistically, those who are more evangelical evangelistic will have more converts than uh, expressions that don't do much sharing. 1971 was the year that I I came to Christ. That was kind of the height of the Jesus movement in Atlanta, 71. The Jesus movement wasn't a formal thing. It was a culture. It was a phenomena where there's this sort of, for lack of a better way to say it, using traditional Christian language, there was a spiritual revival going along, largely driven by young adults. And so there was just an incredible amount of activity going on. Bible studies, youth revival meetings, the birth sort of the explosion of early Christian music. It kind of bounced off the West Coast where it really was, you know, taken root in the late 60s and lands in Atlanta. And scores and scores of teenagers, hundreds of them, showing up at all these kinds of meetings, uh, whether they're concerts or Bible studies and people professing faith in Christ. And it was the Christianized side of the whole hippie movement, which was huge in Atlanta during those years. So it's a countercultural move. It had a lot of really cool elements to it. I think there was a, there was a serious longing for something that was more spiritually alive than the sort of your basic suburban Baptist or Methodist or Presbyterian church within my part of the world in the South was just, you know, every corner and and people dressed up and went to church and whatever. And they're just, it, it seemed to be more of a perfunctory, culturally expected norm than something spiritually alive. And then all this comes along. There's all this incredible amount of energy around real spiritual longing. I personally got involved. That was the summer before I, right, like a few weeks before I started college. So I immediately got involved in Campus Crusade. Crew is crew now. And I just got immersed in it my freshman year. I went to umpteen. I don't, I make good grades. I'm not sure how. I think I spent more time going to Bible studies and and youth group meetings and all kinds of stuff. I formally accepted Christ sometime in 1972 or three, somewhere in there. I was probably, as I started investigating things, that's probably when I started reading things like Late Great Planet Earth. You know, it was just sort of in the air theologically. The influence was also from Calvary Chapel, very much into that sort of thing. And they were a a big influence because they were part of the Jesus movement and ministering to the counterculture of the time, or hippies, if you will. You know, they were one of the first people to try to bridge that gap. Having grown up in a Jewish home, very sheltered environment, 13 years of Hebrew school, three days a week, being bar mitzvahed, and then all of a sudden, at, at about 17 years old, my sister goes off to college, and a year later, we don't hear from her. And then she starts telling us all about Jesus, which in the Jewish culture is something you just don't do. It's like turning your back on Judaism. But I soaked up the gospel like a sponge. And she sent me the book, Late Great Planet Earth. And that book changed my life. I I saw how the Old Testament prophecies, how they were fulfilled. And then all the prophecies about Jesus that were fulfilled in the book of, especially in the book of Matthew, where he points it out pointedly. And how that that book, um, with many good quotes in it, such as history teaches us that man learns nothing from history, a lot of good quotes in that book, and got us thinking, a lot of people at the time, how, okay, so this is it. This is the end of the world that Jesus spoke about. There's the the European Union, which is coming up, the, the, the 12 toes on the statue in the, in the book of Daniel, and the nation of Israel being born in 1948. And a generation wasn't going to pass, and Jesus was coming back. And the book made it very clear, without a doubt, we are in the last days, Jesus is coming. And so for me, um, I wanted to get in on that. And also, at the same time, there was such a strong movement of what's called the Jesus People Movement. Tens of thousands of hippies got saved. That was a natural uh, thing. You know, here's a guy with long hair and sandals talking about peace and love. It It was a great fit. And I got right into that, and it was big. It was something very supernatural. And that, along with what I was reading in that book, was like, oh, yeah, Jesus is coming back. My mom and dad wanted me to go to college and become a doctor, have a career, inherit my dad's medical practice. And all I could think about was, hey, I'm going to go out to California and join this Jesus hippie commune and tell the gospel and forsake it all. I don't care about making a living. I don't care about 
what's going to happen with my life. This is more important. And I just kind of like said goodbye to that and came out here. My parents were very distraught about it. My dad, to his dying day, could never forgive me for being a Christian. My mom has somewhat accepted it. She's still around. But it was a point in, in our lives where we definitely took different directions. But I was really wrapped up in that, and that caused me to just forsake everything and leave it all behind, hitchhike 3,000 miles across the country and get settled out here at this commune. Let's talk about the commune. So you and your wife did join a commune, a, a Jesus People commune. Actually, I met her there, so it was right. a Jesus People commune. We had a um, a ranch in the foothills, the Sierra foothills in Smartville, with a brother's dorm, a sister's dorm, married couple's houses, work foreman for the guys, work foreman for the girls. We ate together. We owned businesses in town, so we were self-supporting. We weren't like many ministries today that kind of bothers me asking for money. We never asked for money. We had a paint business. We had a restaurant. We had a detail shop. We would go out on weekends into town and walk the streets and share the gospel with people. We sent teams out to San Francisco, Sacramento, Lake Tahoe, and established churches. What about life was better at the commune than after oh, the commune? I loved it. Um, I loved working. I loved being around a lot of people that all believed the same. We all thought, yeah, Jesus is coming. We were into the whole discipleship teaching, forsake it all and follow Jesus. And in a commune situation, you can't just play church. It's 24-7. Yeah. And you answer to people all the time. And there were a number of people that came and blew out because of that intensity. How central was the ex expectation of Christ's imminent return to the whole program of that commune? It was the, the driving force. It depended upon where you were in the Christian church, but a lot of what was part and parcel of the Jesus movement was probably a fairly fundamentalist kind of theology. And so it kind of came along with the package from where it was coming from theologically, which is interesting because the more fundamentalist churches were the ones that were out, you know, felt the need then as now, you know, uh, to be evangelistic um, exactly. in the sense of getting people saved because otherwise they were going to hell. And, you know, you were going to hell if you were a hippie or something like that, unless you accepted Jesus. One way to think of it is people are coming into town at, you know, Jesus movement preachers or whomever with a literalist interpretation of the text in hand, and as they preach and explicate Jesus, that is working, and people are coming to Christ. And so we will assume that we should take the same approach to Scripture. That's one possibility. The other possibility— That, let okay. me interject, that that sounds, that sounds reasonably, you know, the way I remember it being. Yeah. So the people who are doing— I guess you could say if you want to call the Jesus movement a revival, which I think is a, you know, a good word for it probably, some kind of revival movement, it is led by people with more fundamentalist readings of the Bible and therefore that generation that gets turned on to Jesus in those days become more fundamentalist. Is that is that right? That seems pretty pretty much correct. I don't have any trouble understanding why the Jesus movement, especially in those four or five years where it's really kicking, why it was appealing to people. I don't have any trouble understanding that. What I don't quite understand is why uh, there appeared to be this expectation of the end times so thoroughly mixed into it. You're the second person in a row I've talked to who became a Christian around then in that movement. And for both of you. It's like that was just part of the deal was it this was. expectation of the end. I, so do you know why that was part of it? Not 100%, but I would say this. There are a lot of forces that are coming along. I mean, Hal Lindsey was in Southern California, worked a lot of this stuff. And, you know, and But even before he wrote the book, he was teaching on it. Uh, I think because there were some players in the Dallas Theological Network and, and people that came out of that, that were people that embraced it. You mentioned earlier that there are variations here, not like pre-tribulation premillennial dispensationalism, which is the left behind style. That's not the only option on the table, but it becomes 
wildly the most popular one. And I yes. wonder why you think that one takes hold in a way that the other ones that also have verses that seem to support them. I mean, there's there's it's kind of a anyone's ball game for a while. And then that one just takes off. My guess is that it was just that convergence of things we've been talking about. You got all these different movements that pop up at one time, and from the from the preachers that are that the voices are there, the Hal Lindsey stuff, the Jesus movement, the seventies being that malaise of the seventies that's often talked about. There's also the heyday of, and I don't mean this in a bad way, just as a fact that it was the in the evangelical world in terms of prestige of theological institutions. It was the heyday of Dallas Seminary, and they were the dispensational school in the country. So that was kind of their heyday was the 70s. And I think that fueled it. So many people came out of there into, into the pulpits. I think they captured the media too, they, they, the media of the day. Hal Lindsey immediately tried to leverage TV and, and print media better than other people did. I mean, the people that were leveraging TV media, while they might have been, I don't know what historic Pentecostalism, honestly, I don't know what historic Pentecostalism's eschatological positions were, but the charismatic movement of the 70s also glommed on to the, um, that dispensational view and that eschatology. And there they began to dominate television, Christian television uh, a lot. So there just were all these ways that I think that they were getting their position heard. Well, that's another interesting generational thing, right? It's the boomers that actually really leverage mass media and they're young enough to know that that matters because they remember Beatles on Ed Sullivan or whatever. I mean, it's like, you know what I mean? So that's, that makes sense actually. Yeah. So I think there was, that was a piece of it. There may be a line you can trace. uh, That's, that's a little bit more concrete than that, but I think it's probably more episodic that in the, as that movement began to, to grow, it was, it just was simultaneously where that, that theology was also being popularized in pulpits, particularly those that were appealing to the young people. So then as soon as late great planet Earth hit, I mean, then the whole thing gets, you know, the first Christian book I ever bought, I went to a local Christian bookstore because it was the only Christian bookstore I knew in the suburb part of Atlanta that I lived in. And I wanted to buy a Bible. The first Bible I bought was a Schofield reference Bible. And the first Christian book I wrote on, bought on theology was Dwight Pentecost Things to Come, which is about you know three inches thick of es- uh, dispensational theology, because somebody had told me this is what you ought to read. So that's, and I just think there's a lot of that going around. I couldn't tell you where all the dots are connected. It just seemed like it there was just this convergence of that at the time. The positive piece, I guess you could call it, maybe not, but there's also a piece that I think is incredible. That's also a driver in this. Why they the two movements complemented each other well, and that is the drive for evangelism. End times theology, as, as it was presented in that era, got a, it used to come any moment. Uh, there was a, it, it infused an already sort of viral movement with, a, with a, another layer of energy. Time is short. you got to tell your neighbors. you got to get your friends in on this. There was already a lot of that in just in terms of the vitality of the of the, of the movement itself, the Jesus movement itself, and then you infuse it with a theology that says, "Hey, we gotta get, we have to be active here because we could be gone, it could be over any minute." It, I think they, it, I think it provided some theological impetus to what was already happening. If that makes sense. That makes total sense. It's almost like maybe I've been thinking about this not backward, but only one directional instead of bi-directional. I've been asking myself okay, I know that eschatology is big in the Jesus movement, and I know the Jesus movement is really big. Why did the Jesus movement bring along this eschatology? Uh, but it could also be true that movements that really emphasize eschatology are more successful because they convert more people because they are more incentivized to evangelize. And the argument I would give for this is that I found this a lot with the younger people I talked to about their experiences growing up in these churches. And the most common pattern that I found was that the salvation picture was pretty standard. It was kind of your standard Baptist thing of, you know, you're going to hell unless you do this, but a young kid's not going to die soon. So they're not that motivated to change. But if Jesus is coming back, then that's like dying soon. And so it moves up the timeline and it increases the pressure 
uh, and the need for both evangelism and for your own taking your own faith seriously to avoid those consequences. I think they certainly complement each other. It does add a sense of urgency to the whole thing. And that was, I would say, at least for probably the early part of the 70s, maybe throughout the 70s, there was this sort of prevailing sense of urgency about these things. It, it, I think the 80s things shifted a little bit in terms of, like anything else, what is the thing everyone's talking about? It started with eschatology, went to spiritual gifts as the charismatic movement grew. By the 80s, it gets to be what later would be pejoratively called sort of therapeutic moralism, where you get into the practical stuff, you know, and all us baby boomer hippies grew up and started having families and had to get real jobs, and we had to figure out something else, you know. Uh, So you get these trends in that. So, But certainly in the first half of the 70s and maybe most of the 70s, that sense of urgency was front and center. This most recent patron-only exclusive episode uh, was me responding to a listener question about how I see the Bible. And the way I decided to kind of take that question was to talk about canon within a canon and how most uh, Christian groups, subgroups, whatever, have uh, denominations, have some part of Scripture that they elevate more highly than other parts of Scripture, which also led to some interesting conversations about sort of wisdom traditions and religious systems in general. So that's there. If you want to become a patron, you get two of those per month, plus access to the patron-only Facebook group to join. It's $5 a month, patreon.com slash dancoke, or youhavepermissionpod.com. Click become a patron. There is a sliding scale. So if you really can't afford that right now, email me, youhavepermissionpodcast at gmail.com. Now, Back to today's episode. So to recap, my three-part argument for why this was so popular. Part one, the type of people who did the evangelizing that kicked off the Jesus movement were essentially fundamentalists. They were very into eschatology and times. They read their Bible in a very straightforward, basically a dictation model of the inspiration of Scripture. Now to the second point. Some stuff that was going on in the world made it seem plausible to the young people hearing this message that this might, in fact, be the case. What is really going on? First, let's jump into my my chat about Russia, Cold War and all that stuff with Steve. It was tied into, you know, fear of communism back, you know, from the 50s onward, any political instability in the world or, you know, any uncertainty was kind of equated as being part and parcel of being end times. Uh, Russia could blow us up any time with nuclear weapons, <laughs> you know. What place did the Cold War occupy in your mind when you were a young person? I think at that time in my life, which would have been the early 60s, it seemed very prominent in people's minds and the news and probably politics that it was us and the Russians or should I say the Soviet Union? And it was like, capitalism is good, communism is bad, we're we're good, they're bad. And then when the space race kind of started out, it was like, who's going to get into space first? And of course, the I believe the Russians beat us. And then um, things accelerated to the point where we really got got after it at that point. I think Kennedy was like, we're going to put somebody on the moon, we're going to show the Russians. And it was kind of a national pride thing. I was born in 53, so I would have been eight years old at the Cuban Missile Crisis, which was a traumatic thing for the country. A lot of fear, a lot of feeling that it was about to explode into, literally, into a nuclear uh, war with, with the Soviets. And so all I remember is that there was a lot of fear mongering. I mean, not mongering, but just genuine fear when that happened. Because, you know, Cuba is right off our southern border, and it was not like way over there in Soviet Union, it's like 90 miles from Miami. And so there was a lot of tension over that. And then, so they started the drills, you know, like now I look back and it's comical, you know, that as if that was going to actually help anything, <laughs> you know, to just go out in the hallway and, or, you know, to go to your desk and duck and duck and cover, like as if somehow that was going to protect you. I have fairly distinct memories of the Cuban Missile Crisis. I was actually sick during that and I was home watching TV too much on the news. It was on the news a lot. I remember sort of the sense of foreboding about it. And the second thing was I, I remember very vividly where I was and what happened two years later when Kennedy was assassinated. 
So, I mean, I'm still only 10 years old at that point, but it's, it's pretty vivid in my memory what happened. So fairly close together, you had what were somewhat traumatic experiences as a, you know, as a kid. Do you think that at least for the sort of zeitgeist of the 60s, 70s, and then 80s till, till like late Cold War, that the fact that there was a kind of an evil empire in Russia that existed in the world at that time made all of the doomsday end times, this is all coming to a head, feel more plausible to people? Probably so. I mean, like, I did have girlfriends whose parents built a bomb shelter. You know, I mean, that wasn't true for my family, but I think about that now as an adult. Your parents are building a bomb shelter so you can survive atomic war? That's a pretty big deal. Yeah, it's it's a big uh, expense. Well, yeah, so it, like other things. Uh, well, yeah, but I mean, so it, but it shows like a, a kind of sincerity of, of fear and belief. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Because yeah. it's, it's not just like uh, posting a Facebook status. It's thousands right. of dollars and a lot of time yeah. and all that stuff. Yeah. 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 Did you hear stuff about the Cold War? Was that referenced? Uh, yeah. I mean, I grew up with Duck and Cover, but that was not influential on me. It wasn't a primary focus at home. My parents were the type that were, they weren't building bomb shelters. So it wasn't, that was not frightening to me. What was more real was the world of church and the idea of heaven and hell and inadvertently getting the mark of the beast. I can remember asking, what is that? How do I know? Interesting. Inadvertently getting it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And in my junior high and high school years, there was conversations about, like a new credit card technology had come out and people were saying, this is the mark of the beast. That was my reality, not the Cold War, but the heaven and hell, the tribulation, the being left behind, the being deceived by the enemy. Just talk about how the the rapid change of technology played in psychologically to your expectation that, yeah, this is this whole thing might be wrapping up here pretty soon. Yeah, because things like credit cards, like you say, or even just the ability to, to capture things on film. I think we, we all talked about the chip it was going to maybe be in your hand or your forehead, which could have been an electronic thing. We talked about it back then. Television was a big deal. When I thought about the verse where when Jesus comes back, every eye will see him, we thought, well, television. And now today, even on an iPhone, you can see anything in the world instantly. But I, I, at the time, I thought, well, we can see anything in the world on TV, things like that. Yeah, I think a lot of the mentality in the 60s was things are getting crazy, nuclear weapons, race relations, you know, the assassinations of several prominent political figures, the hippie movement. Would you have agreed with the following statement, things are getting worse in the world? Absolutely. And again, limited amount of news at the time, but just the fact that you know, the Vietnam War was going on, there was, you know, we've always felt like things are horrible in the world. Famine, disease, wars, the whole us versus them with the communists and the and the Americans. Again, that the war in the Middle East was always a powder keg. And, you know, there was always the thing about, oh, the population's getting so big, we're not going to have enough food to feed the planet. So there was the population scare. In 1971, would you have agreed with the following statement, things are getting worse in the world? Yes. Tell me about that a little bit. I don't know if I would have had any empirical evidence to back up my feeling. I think it was more of a perception because it was what we you heard. Um, Vietnam War was still going on in the early 70s. We're getting trying to, you know, that hasn't completely played out, and it would play out in a rather embarrassing and catastrophic end for the U.S. in 73. So that's, that's still spiraling in early 70s. So there's that's hanging. The Vietnam War looms huge on my generation. That, that whole thing uh, was a major, major definer. So that's still going on. You're about to have Watergate, all of that. The decade ends with the Iranian hostage crisis. The 70s were a decade in which there was this sense that of foreboding that America was in decline. It was one of the reasons that Reagan was so popular in 1980. He was the hope, the, the shining light on the hill, the revivalist of American exceptionalism. 
and coming off a dark decade of war and political scandal and then the embarrassment of the hostage crisis and everything associated with that, there was this longing for someone to restore the narrative that America is the greatest nation on earth. And Reagan tapped into that big, big, big time. What percentage of the church members, if you could guess that you, when you were growing up, if they were, if they were surveyed and the survey question came, do you agree with the following statement? Things are getting worse in the world. What percentage would have said, yeah, they are. Oh, 90, 95. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think the connection is between that as a basic, let's say, psychological attitude toward the world mm-hmm. and impending doom, impending rapture? I think it's absolutely connected that if you believe the world is getting worse, then you're thinking we're headed for the end times. We're getting so evil that God's going to have to destroy the world like he did at the time of the flood because we're just so evil. Now, this whole story does not make any sense unless we talk a little bit about Israel, the nation of Israel. In the 19th century, Darby, the originator of this kind of uh, particular kind of eschatological theology, predicted that Israel would become a nation sometime in the future. And that happened in 1948. How often did they talk about Israel being reformed as a nation in 48? That was a big part of the fulfillment of the prophecy. So it was frequently mentioned. We can't underplay, in terms of the development of this, the historical significance of 1948 and reconstitution of Israel and the prophetic calendar. So when we were in the 70s and the 80s, and we're still in that window. And then people would take the saying of Jesus that when this generation, which they would label as 40 years, so... You got to, you know, as the clock moved toward 88, there was this thinking that we're in this, that there was also a time stamp that some people put on it that sort of accelerated that interest. And so you had these historical things of unrest in Europe and all this happening on top of, within that historical window that people were anticipating something dramatic to happen. So that just kind of exacerbated that. I'm not totally clear on why the reforming of Israel is the thing that starts that clock. Because I always read that passage as Jesus is talking to the people who are there right in front of him. How does that become, no, it's the people that see Israel reform? If you have that lens and you're looking for it, then you take sayings that Jesus has and you assign that association that this is. And so the reconstitution of Israel is is launching, you know, X, Y, you know, this particular part. And then they take, there's just this, it's, it's, the bottom line is it's arbitrary. And and the and so is the forty year thing. That's just so. Oh, the Bible says a generation is forty years. Well, sort of. You know, that's even even that's quasi. That's pretty. I guess you know, basic math says that's close to true. <laughs> you know. Let's talk about Israel. So, how central of a place in this whole understanding in the schema did the fact that in nineteen forty eight Israel reformed and that was prophesied? Like, how central was that? single event to the whole thing. Pretty important. And then, and then there was all this defining what is a generation? Is it 25 years? Is it 50 years? And that Jesus was going to come back within that generation. I, I believe there's verses that indicate that. But there's a lot of things that, that that you read in the New Testament that don't make a whole lot of sense sometimes. For example, Jesus at one point says to some people standing there about the return of the kingdom, that some people standing there would not see death before the return of the kingdom, which means either something happened then that was return of the kingdom, or there's some people around that are really old. <laughs> like the guy in Raiders of the Lost Ark that they find in that cave, you know, they've been there for hundreds of years. I often wonder, well, I guess that's possible, but what does that mean? So there's a lot of mysteries there. I definitely make a strong connection between God saying to Abraham, I will bless them to bless you, and I will curse them to curse you. The Arab nations and other nations that curse Israel seem to have so many problems. And nations like America and some European countries that bless Israel seem to do really well, unless I'm misreading things. Now, also, it wasn't only the reforming of Israel in 1948 that played into these prophetic calendars, but it was also the expansion and strengthening of Israel that continued into the 1960s that many of these commentators thought was very important. 
I still think, uh, Dan, the central driver was Israel. Everything revolved around the reinstatement of the nation of Israel as a as as a prophetic fulfillment of God's intention for the destiny of the nation, the return to the land. In that, you've got the sixty-seven war, which they get Jerusalem or at least a portion of you know back, and so there's more territory taken in the sixty-seven war. So the borders are expanding. Jerusalem's back. Uh, in their control, and so there's massive more land that's now under Israeli control than what was given to them in 1948. It's also there. See, we had this 48 thing kicking off this prophetic time clock, and now see 67. The, the Israelis are expanding. It's and this it, it's all part of this uh, restoration of Israel um, process that was going to happen. So that's right at the time when this stuff starts to kick up. So I think it provided again a historical underpinning for the idea that this prophetic clock is now ticking uh, ticking down because of the restoration of Israel. And then out of that, everything else flows. And that was my early understanding of it. it so much of it fl- was grounded in Israel. And then the other thing that was very big was the idea of uh, supporting Israel, because any, you know, any nation that turned its back on Israel would be rejected. Okay, that's helpful. Is that part of what this is about, the, the unconditional support for Israel, is that actually if America stops supporting Israel in like a basic diplomatic mm-hmm. military sense, that when Christ returns, God will not accept American Christians? Will we'll punish us. Okay. We will be punished if we reject Israel. Yeah. And that's where a lot of that comes from, I think. Interesting. I've never quite understood that part of it. I certainly wasn't taught that, or it went in one ear out the other if I was. So that would explain some of the kind of um, extreme political push to maintain that alliance, mm-hmm. because oh, yeah. if that public sort of diplomatic alliance wavers, then, you know, a hundred million American Christians will be punished by God directly for that. Mm-hmm. And that will be pulverized as a nation or as a country. Yeah. But won't everything be pulverized within seven years? <laughs> Maybe not us, because we're God's chosen. <laughs> if I we see. do the right thing. Even then, it's only a seven-year run. I mean, it's not... And then aren't we going to be raptured anyway? Like, anyway, the internal yeah, logic of some of that does not make sense to me. No, it does not. I agree. Was the end times or the the end, like what was Christ's return... And sort of all this stuff wrapping up, was that something that you looked forward to, something that you dreaded, and why? Looked forward to, but was a, I was a little bit scared of how bad could it get for Christians. And there's a lot of persecution of Christians worldwide now in other countries. I mean, serious. And my pastor pointed that out because we've had this a little bit of this discussion about when are the end times. But he did make a good point that persecution of Christians is pretty heavy right now. And that, that used to scare me a little bit. Like, could I handle being tortured, that kind of thing? But I was willing to just, I figured, well, God will give me grace whatever comes up. But I thought, yeah, the end times are coming and things are going to get bad for Christians and then Christ will return. Hmm. So a mix of looking forward to and a little bit of, of fear about h- how you'd be able to hack it, basically. To, to hack it, but looking forward to, gosh, Jesus, come back soon. Yeah. Maranatha, Jesus come soon. Awesome. How could I how could I disagree? But it would be really nice if my friends that thus far have resisted my, you know, attempts to explain the gospel to them would become saved because I don't want to find that that I have somehow been responsible for their damnation by not properly explaining the gospel to them. You know, there's a lot of motivation like that. When you still believed that the rapture was coming soon, is it something that you looked forward to? Is it something you dreaded and why? I dreaded it. I didn't know if I'd be raptured. I didn't know if I'd have to endure it. The idea about that cataclysmic destruction, I found very disturbing. Even if I were out of it, my uncle by marriage, survived the concentration camps. And to me, that's what the rapture, when I think about the rapture or in times, I think about what the concentration camps were like on a magnified scale. And it's horrific. Why do you think 
there, there isn't more talk like that in this world. Um, is that related to the fact that it's all men in positions of authority? <laughs> I mean, not, not joking, right? Like war movies, car movies, mm-hmm. violence, uh, doesn't, maybe doesn't affect men the way it does women, broadly speaking. Um, and since there are no women in power, we're, this is all getting filtered through like literally every single prophecy explainer, every single pastor, every single whatever mm-hmm. Bible annotator, they're all men. Uh, mm-hmm. And so is that missing for kind of a gender reason? Could be. I, I haven't not thought about that before, but it does seem that the language used to describe it is the language of power of being on the winning side, the losing side. And yet to me, I just felt it was all loss. Well, that's it for part one. We'll be back next week with part two of this series and the final part. Uh, Thank you for (laughs) sticking with me on this. I think I find this stuff very fascinating. I found these conversations so interesting with Dave, Steve, Sally, and uh, Danny. And uh, I hope that you did too. And next week we will talk about how this generation was the one that ended up in power. We also will talk about where uh, these four folks are at today on this question, talking a little bit about um, Sally's fundamentalist context uh, and how that was a little similar to a lot of the people I interviewed in that four-part um, End Times Anxiety series. And then uh, a little bit of uh, hearing from them about the Jesus movement with some nostalgia that I, I quite understand and and frankly kind of wish I was there. So thank you, Josh Gilbert, for editing these clips. His email is in the show notes for more podcast work. Join the Patreon if you'd like to. Uh, Email me if you'd like to. It's all in the show notes. See you guys next week.